Well, welcome this morning, North Shore Alliance. It's great to see your faces. A joy to be with you. It's a sunny day, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, thanks also to those of you joining us online. We're also glad that you're here. Um, it's a joy to be with you in the room today. Hey, before I begin, actually, I should say something about, uh, so as you know, as I hope you know, Paul, our worship pastor. Paul, where are you? Oh, he's, he's hiding. That's okay. Paul, our worship pastor, is about to be sent into the missions field. Um, and we are excited to be able to launch them, to send them as missionaries for our church. And they're having a, a meal fundraiser on Saturday, October 1st. All right, so this is probably the best $50 I've spent this year. All right, and I want to encourage you, if you're available, to, um, to support them as well and come for the meal. The meal's going to be great. Uh, our Andrew Filipov is helping to make it, but some exciting stuff. But uh, see Paul and Gina after the service and get your ticket, and then you can hang out with them, <clears throat> which is better than hanging out with me. At least that's what I think. All right, let's take a moment and review uh, why we're in First Peter together as a church family. We're talking about the exilic life. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Peter offers us a kind of manual for how to be faithfully Christian in a hostile world. How to be faithfully Christian in a hostile world. And one of the things I said last week is that we are essentially expats and immigrants who are uh, exiled at the moment from the kingdom of God, living in the tension and pinch of a world that isn't quite our home. We belong somewhere else, and there's some tensions as we live in this world. And last week, I took some time to outline some of the characteristics of our post-Christian environment. I took some time to outline some of those characteristics um, and um, what it means to live in this world. And actually, we're going to come back to these things in our Vision Ice Cream Social next Sunday night. And I'll go into some more detail about what it is to live in the pinch of this world. But in brief, the post-Christian situation in which we find ourselves involves a rejection of the transcendent. There's no uh, meta-narrative. There's no overworld. There's nothing above us telling us who we are and what we're doing. Okay? And that's combined with a fresh incomprehension to a witness to the transcendent. People are thinking, this doesn't make any sense that you believe in this supernatural reality. And even a kind of hostility toward that witness. And so what we are as Christians is we are adherents of an ancient religion that finds itself once again foreign to the average person we meet. Okay? So life in a post-Christian environment sets us at odds to it, and it is in this sense that Peter offers us a manual for how to live in this tension and in this pinch. So I have two, what I think are relatively modest goals for today's message, just two big things I want to do together. One, I want us to understand as a church what Peter is saying in the first nine verses of his letter. What's Peter saying? What's the message he has for us? And then I want to build on what he's saying um, as a lesson for our community. I'm going to call it life on the Z axis. And I'm afraid I will stick to my American guns and call it a Z and not a Z axis. I'm sorry. You, can, you continue, you have letters B, C, and G, but you don't pronounce them bed, said, and ged. Okay? So, it's the Z axis. I'm sorry. This, this place, you're British, you're forgiven because of the queen. Anyway, um, <clears throat> all right. Let's begin with the passage. Uh, and let me highlight some things before I read it for you. Uh, I want to remind you the original recipients of the letter of 1 Peter were undergoing some kind of trial. We don't have specifics. We don't know what was the nature of their experience. We just knew it was some kind of persecution. Uh, but reports of their personal suffering and of their faith had reached Peter. And so he wrote this letter to encourage him. Now, we're going to read this in a minute. And before I read it, and there's a lot of words on the page because I'm going to use the text several times. Uh, but we're going to read it. There is a lot of theology in this. 
And it's going to perhaps fly at you pretty quickly, and hopefully I'll be able to piece together the story of what's going on so you can walk away with some comprehension. <clears throat> now, one more thing to say. I want to talk about uh, paper Bibles. Now, obviously, it's super easy to have the words on the screen. That's great. And it's super easy to carry a Bible with you in, in your pocket. That's kind of a fun feature. Um, but I'm afraid that people who rely on digital Bibles are as lost as people who rely on GPS. Okay? <laughs> It can, you can search and find your way places, but you have no idea where you are or where you're going. And you can't refine things. So I just want to encourage you to bring a paper Bible to church. Now, I make a point of reading from it physically because I think that's important, but you need to have some facility with this book so you know where you are and where you're going and what's going on. Okay, that's my pitch. That's my Luddite pitch for paper books. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Let me read for you now 1 Peter 1. Uh, 1 through 9. The first verses we read last week, but they, they figure in what we're going to say again today. So it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." Okay, some high theology, a lot of uh, big words may be thrown out there. Let's see if we can piece some of them together. And in one sense, what I want to say, the message of the passage is quite straightforward. The message is quite straightforward. What Peter does is he consistently recalls spiritual reality in the midst of earthly struggle. Peter draws our attention to the spiritual realities in the midst of earthly struggles. Um, the next slide takes us back to the passage. It just highlights where verse 6 fits within this. You'll see the kind of golden color right there. Even right now, you are undergoing trials of various kinds. I think even the fact that Peter has situated this idea, the statement of their trials, in the middle of all the stuff that God is doing is saying something. Our trials are contextualized by the spiritual reality that surrounds them. And Peter wants us to see and experience this directly. <clears throat> so let's focus for a moment on how Peter recalls the spiritual reality. I'm going to highlight seven ways that Peter does this. There's probably more in the passage, but these are the seven that I wanted to draw out for you this morning. Now, uh, you've got seven numbers. If you're following in your outline, you've got seven numbers. I'm not going to put the words up. We're just going to go through the passage together, and I'm going to change and highlight the phrases as they show up through the passage. So we're going to work through it right now. We'll go through this pretty quickly because I want to make uh, focus on the big point together. <clears throat> so here's some seven things by which Peter reframes our present trial. So number one is God's foreknowledge and God's call. And these are coming out of verses 1, 2, and 1, 3, okay? So, uh, the foreknowledge of God and the call of God. The foreknowledge is that God knows what's going on. God knows the end of the story. 
God knows where you've come from, and he knows where you're going, and he knows where you're plotted along the middle of this story at the same time. Nothing that's happening to you right now is outside of his knowledge and his power. We can go to this next slide because it's going to highlight the foreknowledge of God and the call of God. Okay. <clears throat> now, the call of God is a bit tricky because uh, it's this word elect. elect. Elect in Greek is the word to be called out from, to be drawn from. And calling and election are, are very similar ideas. And that means that God has placed you in these present circumstances. God has put you in the place where you are right now. He's called you to be this. So we talked about the word being scattered before, where before scattering is a punishment, a judgment. Now scattering is the scattering of seed. He wants to do something with you, and you're there for a reason. And so therefore, you can rely on the knowledge of God's call. All right, let's move on. Number two is Christ's resurrection, and this comes out of verse three. Can we skip ahead to the couple slides to get to the next one, please? Because it'll highlight the words on the screen for us. There we go, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, let me remind you that the world changed radically on an April Sunday morning in AD 33. A man came back to life. He was dead. And his coming back to life transformed our lives and transformed our experiences. In fact, it transformed the entire world. Death is not the end. Now we know that there is Christ who conquers death. And because of his resurrection, we become a people of incredible confidence and power. The resurrection transforms reality. Third thing that Peter highlights is our imperishable <clears throat> inheritance. This is verse 4, the imperishable inheritance that we've received. Christ's Spirit dwells in us, and through His Spirit, we are secure as co-inheritors with Christ. What Christ inherits, life after death, we inherit with Him because of the Spirit living in us. We're the only people on the planet who know exactly where we're going when we die, to be in the presence of King Jesus. That's it. And this gives us immense confidence in the present. Fifth thing is God's protecting power, the power of God that protects us. This is in verse 5. Um, the power that raised Jesus from the dead now secures you in this salvation and preserves you in the present time. Our faith keeps us connected to the experience and knowledge of that power. You guys remember the old song, he's got the whole world in his hands. The whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. And it goes on. He's got the itty-bitty babies in his hands. And it, He's powerful, and his power protects and encompasses us, okay? Fifth factor is our coming salvation. This is verse 5, the salvation to be revealed to us. Christ is returning. He will be revealed in power. The kingdom of which we are citizens and members is invading, and this is happening inevitably. And so we can trust in the coming kingdom of King Jesus. Of course, at the moment, number 6, he's the unseen king. Verse 8, although you do not see him right now. Christ ascended to heaven where he's seated at God's right hand, a position of perfect authority. He's the perfect judge. He's the perfect sovereign. And what's he doing? He's interceding on our behalf. Remember, we talked about this when we talked about Hebrews a few months back. Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding for you. He's uplifting you, right? He's unseen also because he's gone away to leave us to do the work of the mission that he's left behind. In the Bible, remember, he's the landowner who goes away and trusts us, his stewards, to manage the job until he comes back. We've got a job to do. He's unseen because we've been tasked with that job. <clears throat> all right, seventh and finally, and this one's going to be different colors because it runs throughout all three things. There's the spirit, the living hope, and the joy inexpressible, or in order on your page, living hope, spirit, and the present joy. 
Because God's spirit is within us, we have a living hope. And that living hope evokes the language that Jesus uses when he talks about the springs of living water welling up from within you. Now, a spring of living water, if you're, if you're wandering around, is when you're walking and you see the bubbling water coming out of the ground. It's an artisanal kind of situation rather than a stagnant body of water. It means it's renewed, it's fresh, it's abundant. It means it's not a scarce resource. It's not something that has to be limited and rationed. It's abundant hope. It's flowing hope. And it keeps being renewed and renewed and renewed. And that filling of, and refilling of God's spiritual water becomes the source of our joy, even in the most difficult of circumstances. So let me tell you a story. Back in the early 70s, before um, South Vietnam fell to the Viet Cong, there was a young Vietnamese man named Hien Pham. And he came to Christian faith after an American soldier gave him a Bible came to faith. And so after the fall, however, um, he was sent to a variety of prison camps, as happened to any of the South Vietnamese who were assisting the Americans at that time. And one of these camps was a, was a communist indoctrination camp that was trying to remove his kind of Western Christianity. It was a camp targeted to remove these things. Now, I don't know what kind of personal struggles you're experiencing right now, but they are not as bad as spending time in a 1970s Vietnamese reindoctrination camp. That's about as bad as it gets. So him was worn down daily, and he was very close to giving up. In fact, he'd made a decision the night before to stop praying. He says, God, I'm done. I can't do this. The next day, he wakes up, and he's set to latrine duty. Now, you think it's bad enough to be in a reindoctrination camp. Latrine duty is the lowest of the low situations you can possibly in. So he's there. He's in the latrine, and he's cleaning out a can from one of the officers, and he notices a scrap of paper with some writing on it. And he stops, and he looks at the writing, and he finds out the writing is from a page of the Bible. It's Romans chapter 8, and here's what he reads. He reads, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? So, he encounters God's word in the worst of circumstances, and standing in the latrine, Ken weeps. Because of what God's done, he'd met him. So what does he do in response? He volunteers for latrine duty. Okay? And over the coming weeks and months, uh, he finds more and more pages of the Bible because he discovered that one of the officers was using his Bible as toilet paper. Okay? Now, um, this begins to nurture him during his imprisonment. So how do the lessons of 1 Peter apply to this scenario? Well, God knew. God had the timing to arrange for that uh, officer to have a Bible to be at, in need and to rip the page from Romans chapter 8. It was exactly the words that the poor Christian in the latrine was going to need to read in that moment. God knew. And God sustained him. And the power of Christ's resurrection was there. And the salvation was imminent, although unseen at that moment. And the unseen king was present with him, even though he was in a difficult circumstance. And because there was a living hope and a joy, even in the midst of an outhouse, he had joy inexpressible. His circumstances were reframed by a spiritual reality. And we are invited into something similar. I don't know what kind of trials you're experiencing right now. There are any number of places where you could be feeling a personal pinch of faith, where your faith sets you at odds with the world. So it could be spiritual pain or personal discomfort. It could be actual persecution, I'm not sure. It could be things like ostracization, alienation, or even just simple loneliness. You feel alone in the world. 
But in these situations, God knows. His foreknowledge has been there. Okay? And God's called you, and he secures you in that call. And Christ is risen, and his resurrection power uh, sits above and beyond all that you're experiencing right now. And we await him, we are protected by that power, while we await his inevitable salvation, and we experience the joy of the presence of the unseen king in our joy and living hope. So whatever your circumstances, you're called to attend to this spiritual reality. And that's, hopefully you can see how Peter is layering spiritual reality over and above present circumstances. That's what's happening in 1 Peter 1, 1 through 9. Spiritual reality highlighted over present circumstances, whatever they might be. A summons to attend to unseen reality. So this gets us to a key pastoral point. The key pastoral point is this. In Peter's theology, spiritual reality transforms our present circumstances. The spiritual reality of what God has done and is doing in Christ is transformative of your present circumstances. I want to highlight briefly three ways this works, and I'll illustrate these all personally, my personal story. So, number one, in light of spirituality, we reinterpret present events. When you're looking at spiritual reality, you get to reinterpret what's going on. Now, uh, last week I talked about our personal story a little bit. I said that 18 months ago, we were in some dire circumstances. I had just about to finish my, I just finished my PhD, and we were looking at a dim job market, and we were about to be jobless, homeless, and penniless, with uh, four children and one spouse, about as a 40-year-old man to move back in with my mom. Okay? Woo, says Brendan. Low circumstances, right? No, I, don't, I wouldn't call that a persecution. That wasn't a persecution. It was a difficulty. It was a, it was a conflict brought about by um, our sense of obligation to follow God and the difficulties of doing that faithfully in the world. Now, we'd chosen to follow the path of getting a PhD just like we'd chosen to follow the path of ministry. And this led to difficulties. It was hard. It didn't make sense to certain people. Can't you just get a job? Get any job. Just do something. What's, what's wrong with, here's a job, take this one. And we had to make a decision. Do we feel honestly called by God to seek a place that's urban, coastal, multicultural, and post-Christian? Are we convinced that that is actually God's word for our family? And, and not everyone around us was convinced in the same way. We had to hold on to that. And so it was difficult. And we survived. We survived that season, not because we were excellent, but because we had to recall God's foreknowledge and God's character and God's power and God's preservation. And know that he, had call, he who had called us to those circumstances had other work and hand for us. So, God's reality was transforming our present circumstances, but we had to rely on that reality. Now, that's the second thing to say, is that in light of spiritual reality, we clarify our faith. It really clarifies what it is to believe. Uh, these, the spiritual realities, are the things we really do believe in. We believe in God, the transcendent reality, his immense power and the Holy Spirit and his call and foreknowledge and the things he is calling us to in this world. We do believe in these things. We hold on to them in the midst of our circumstances. And it drives us to the word of God. It also drives us to the community of faith to be able to stand with these things together. There were times, I'm not going to pretend that it was easy. There were times when it was very difficult to trust in God's provision. And we now, we'd lived by faith for five years the Lord had provided for all of our financial needs for five years consecutive. It was amazing that he did these things. It doesn't make it easier. It doesn't make it easier when you're looking at the end of your finances to say, all right, now, now what, Lord? Where's the next thing going to come from? And so we had to wait, and we had to look. 
And one of the things we had to do was rely on the prayers of others. We had a network of faithful friends, a network of people who were praying for us and supporting us and uplifting us, people who could speak to us and remind us that, hey, God's had you before, he'll have you again. And they reminded us when we were weak that we were following along with God's power. Now, I want to say this very carefully. Faith during those times didn't mean that we had special fervor or special feeling. Being faithful when it was hard didn't mean that. And then God met us and we had warm, glowy, happy feelings. Faith meant that we relied on the truth of God's supernatural reality even when it pinched. It's very different. It's really wrong, and one of the errors we made to think that faith is a personal virtue. Faith is a virtue of us as a gathered church. It's something that we get to do together. We have faith together. We support each other in faith by reminding each other, by calling one another to what God is doing, reminding us, our, each other of the spiritual reality that overlays our present circumstances. A good phrase to hold on to is this, in times of weakness, let the church have faith for you. When you're feeling weak and you're feeling really run down, that's the time to lean into your small group and into your community and to the people around you. Let us help. We get to do this together, okay? Third and finally, spiritual reality strengthens us to endure. Strengthens us to endure. Remembering these things, recalling these things, gives us a sense of strength that we require to be able to go through it. And we could not have made it through those difficult years without relying on God. And the hope in God, in turn, renewed us. And there are some things that strengthened us, like the knowledge that God's been good, he'll be good again. He's been good. God called us to this, and I don't think he's done yet. We're going to wait and see how this call plays out with him. God's protected our family so far, let's trust him to protect us again. It's not like a perfect guarantee in these ways. It may hurt. He may lead us into other things. But we can trust, if he's been good, that he'll continue to be good. So three things briefly covered. We reinterpret circumstances, it clarifies our faith, and it strengthens us in the midst of trials. And this is how Peter teaches us to address our own difficulties. He wants us to maintain the knowledge and perspective of God's spiritual power in the midst of whatever your earthly circumstance may be. And that knowledge and perspective should in turn help us to trans be transformative in the world. And this actually gets very interesting. We're not going to deal with this today. It's going to come up in several weeks' time. Because later in the book, Peter will suggest that our perspective, our heavenly perspective, is the source of our power to bring our opponents to faith. Clinging to the spiritual perspective becomes the very means by which they get exposed to it. It's part of your evangelistic call. So, but we're going to come back to that. Okay, that was modest goal number one. Peter's kind of theology of the big picture on suffering. But let me turn to this second modest goal, which is what I called life on the Z axis, all right? Life on the Z axis. Now, um, we've covered the big passage, but like I said, I want to take this time because I think beyond the simple but not simplistic application to suffering, there's a bigger application of this spiritual reality for us to consider. So I want to recall again some of the things I talked about last week when I described our post-Christian world. Uh, and I should clarify again, uh, we are not a post-Christian church. We're just a Christian church. We're a Christian church in a post-Christian world. Um, and that's something important. Our world, I talked about, is secular. And secular means of this world and of this time. It means focused and fixated only on the presence of this time. Uh, the opposite of secular is transcendent, to have a world above and around ours. 
And one of the characteristics of our current world is that there is a real rejection of the transcendent, a resistance to anything uh, meta, anything above, anything uh, that governs that's not, not exactly tangible. But with the rejection of the supernatural reality comes rejection of things like truth and meaning. We'll come back to this. Now, in describing the transition, I appealed to an image. I said that what the world has gone is from a place that was three-dimensional to a place that's two-dimensional. There was a flattening of reality, uh, a world without texture, without depth. And so in mathematics, uh, I'm going to put two graphs up on the screen. You're familiar with the x and y axis, right? If you want to plot any information, you get to use the x and y. Y is usually vertical and x is usually the horizontal axis. But of course, there's a third axis, isn't there? There's also the z-axis which gives you a sense of uh, 3D space moving through space. Now, a transcendent world is a z-axis world. It's a world that's plotting in a very complex way. But a secular world only has recourse to two dimensions. It doesn't have recourse to this ultra-narrative, ultra this, this thing sitting above us. And one of the reasons for our experience of discomfort and pinch in the world is that we are called to make our decisions and live based on the z-axis not based on only the X and Y axes. Remember, this world is not our home. And the more that we live according to this axis, the more it creates some of the jarring effect of our faith on our decisions and our commitment to meaning and on what is significant and how we make these things. Now, on one sense, being on the Z axis is perfectly sensible. Recall what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. He says this to Satan. Satan tries to tempt him to turn stones into bread. And Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's really subtle. Man does not live by bread alone. In other words, you are material. Yeah, you do need food, but you're not only material. You need something other than material to survive. You need the word of God as well. And one of the temptations in the history of the church is to imagine that we could be perfectly spiritual, right, and kind of float off the planet and not need any more, uh, not live or need any of the uh, access to the material world. And yet we could also go the other way and be so focused on the material that we neglect the spiritual, okay? But the truth of the matter is, is that we're material and spiritual beings. We're amphibians. We're designed for life in more than one world. We can breathe the air in multiple spaces. And so our concerns are governed not only by the X and Y, but also by the Z. We have to make decisions and we have to think about our life relative to this spiritual reality which runs alongside everything that's going on. And sometimes explaining our worldview to the people in our lives, because we're amphibians, sometimes explaining the Christian worldview to non-Christians is like being a frog and trying to explain life and air to a fish. You have no comprehension of the experience of what it's like to live in two worlds. And I'm trying to make it clear to you. And one core reason, of course, that our world is so lost is because it has no recourse and no power on its own to reach the spiritual reality. I mean, the best a fish can do is jump, get a momentary experience, but what's it like to breathe and live and experience it? Now, this is the axis of life that Peter highlights for suffering Christians in Asia Minor. To rephrase or paraphrase 1 Peter 1, Peter says something like this, you are tempted right now to see only your two-dimensional circumstances. And to be honest, they hurt. It is hard. But I want you to remember the Z-axis. I want you to recall the spiritual reality that has power to transform your circumstances. This is a big metaphor, but I want to play it out for a little bit longer. It's tempting to see only the two-dimensional as the reason for our pain, but we're called, we're called to attend to something more. 
So with this away, I want to highlight four ways I think this is important for us. Uh, these are, should be in your notes. The first is, has to do with the z-axis and meaning. A 2D world has nothing to give the world meaning. I mean, let's face it, you are a speck of microscopic dusk appearing briefly on an unimaginably long universal timeline. Okay? The events of your life plotted against the vastness of space and time are worth precisely nothing. If you've not spent time thinking about space, if you're given to despair, maybe don't spend time thinking about the vastness of space this afternoon. Nothing existed before you were here, and nothing will exist after you are gone. The vastness of human experience, of life, poetry, art, war, child-raising, medicine, science, and pleasure amounts to nothing. On a 2D landscape, there is no meaning to our lives. If there is meaning in life, it comes from something outside this world. It's outside of and above us. If human life is going to be significant, if it's going to be worth saving, if it's going to be worth living, it's going to be because God makes it worth living by choosing it, ordering it, and calling it to his purposes. Spiritual reality is the source of all meaningfulness in human life. The z-axis is where we get meaning. Okay? Second thing, z-axis in decision-making. In a 2D world, you have only this world's criteria for making the decisions you want to make in life. So what do I think is best for me, and how much can I get away with without going to jail? These are essentially the criteria it comes down to. Now, some of you, I'm going to guess, have studied your evolutionary biology and may be thinking right now about research done into altruism and why altruism is beneficial because it gives us more survivability, right? And so this is ingrained within us. It's biologically beneficial for us to be nice to one another. Uh, but mechanistic altruism, in this sense, is really just psychopathic manipulation. You're nice because you're a psychopath, and you're calculating relationships to get the benefit for you, even if you're not thinking about it. Everything's mechanized. Okay? The flattening effect of this kind of secular vision, the 2D landscape, is that desire is the only governing factor for what it means to be human. What do I want, and how do I get it? What makes you you is your desires. has to be. What else could it be? But our Z-axis, the spiritual axis, we are driven to ask, what does God want? What does he want? And this is why our, Christian's decision, our Christian decisions about things like your career or your sexuality or your pleasure or your success are so countercultural. They're made on another plane of decision-making, what it is that makes us us. We're not making decisions about how to behave on the same set of criteria others are using. Others are using. Our criteria are based on our supernatural, our love for a supernatural being, which is insanity to a world that denies the supernatural. Third factor is ethics, the z-axis of ethics. And this actually lies on the boundary between decision-making and uh, meaning. What's right and wrong? What determines whether my life is well-lived or a waste? How am I supposed to treat other people? If there's no supernatural reality shaping my present choices, then what is it that determines good and bad? Have you thought about this? One of the answers people give is um, what's good and bad at the moment. Aren't these things culturally conditioned? That cultural conditioning determines or social acceptability determines what's right and what's wrong. I have some bad news for you. We like to think of ourselves as ethically enlightened people. But I'm afraid to tell you that we are deeply culturally conditioned. It's a fun thought experiment to imagine that if you'd lived 100 years ago, don't you all quietly think that you would have been better in Canada's treatment of indigenous persons? Don't you like to think of yourself that way? 
Or 200 years ago, don't you like to think of yourself as I would have been an abolitionist opposed to slavery, right? I hate to tell you that your values are culturally conditioned. And that 200 years ago, some of you would have been queuing up to own as many slaves as possible. And 100 years ago, you would have been just as concerned about solving the quote-unquote Indian problem as they were at that time. Your values are conditioned by culture. This is a perennial problem with us, okay? It's a very fragile ethics. In every age, we are self-righteous with respect to the sins of the past and blind with respect to the sins of our own time. Distance gives us self-righteousness. You're not better than other people in history. You're just conditioned by slightly different ethics. Be wary of taking pride in those things. Let me give you another example. I think we all agree, certainly on paper, that it's bad to beat your spouse. Okay? If you don't agree, please see Dave or me after the service and we'll have a talking to. We all agree these things. Where does that virtue come from? Where's the dignity of the human person? What's the source of this thing? I've met a man who was beating his wife, and his answer to me was, it's part of my culture. How do you answer that on a 2D axis? How do you respond to that? How do you challenge that? How do you validate that, no, your wife is in the image of God and deserves to be treated with the full respect of any human creature whatsoever? Without recourse to God's image, how do you validate human life in that sense? It's all cultural, isn't it? Now, I'm going to be the first person to say that the church hasn't always gotten this right. I don't want you to think that I'm upping the church to say we've been perfect all along. We've not. We've been enculturated and we've been, we've been goofy. And I'll remind you of the motto of Peter's life from last week, that Peter wasn't patron saint of always getting it right. He's the patron saint of getting it wrong and having to make it right. And that's what should characterize us as well. We're always on course to trying to make it. We're always eager to make course corrections because we're always correcting our earthly decisions based on our understanding of this Z-axis thinking. Let's get ourselves in line with what God's doing. Let me give you some more scattershot examples. The world says succeed at all costs. The Z-axis says what does God want you to do? Uh, The world says, do as you sexually please, so long as you have consent. The Z-axis says, what's God's intention for the human person in sex? Or, to make it worse, do you have God's consent? It's not a question the world's asking, is it? Does he consent to this? Okay. The world says, build a portfolio as large as possible. The Z-axis says, where are the people with needs in your church family? And here's a painful one. The world says, if people annoy you or irritate you or violate your sense of uh, trauma and well-being, cut them off. And what does the Z-axis say? Make it right, no matter how much it hurts. This stuff sets us against the world, doesn't it? All right, fourth and final. I want to talk about the tragedy of not living by our Z-axis thinking. What happens when we don't live according to the spiritual reality? Because we are people with access to vast spiritual power, power that can transform our suffering, defines our meaning, identifies our decision-making, sets our ethics in the world. But we've fallen, and we are fallen people, and there's always a temptation to ignore the spiritual, to live as if only this world mattered. We do it in the church. I want to highlight uh, something that Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 2.13. The Lord speaking through him says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
Two evils. One, I'm the fountain of living water. God, not me, God. God is the fountain of living water. And he's drawing all people to himself to renew them. And you've rejected this living water. And instead, you're building broken pots that can't hold anything. Why? Seems to me a clear description of living just according to this world's desires and thoughts, rather than appealing to the spiritual world of which God is a sovereign king. And whenever we fail to draw on this axis, we're forsaking our God. Whenever we fail to live according to the spiritual reality, we are pulling on broken cisterns. It's, it's going to fade. It won't work. It can't survive. We make decisions based on our pleasure rather than based on God's word. Decisions based on our self-preservation rather than God's call. Decisions based on our fears rather than our call to faith. And one of the ways we do this most tragically is that we get fixated on behavior. When the, when the church thinks only in secular terms, we fixate on the behavior of individual people. We want to modify their behavior in these ways. You know what? The church is never about behavior modification. The church is always about heart modification. I'm not interested in adjusting your behavior. I'm interested in getting you connected with the God of the universe and then letting him sort your behavior out. We're not bullies trying to change people. That's not our job. We're hosts inviting people to meet the Lord of the universe. That's what it means to run a church on this kind of Z-axis thinking. At least I hope that's what it means. And so we are called, brothers and sisters, to know and learn and recall and remind one another of our spiritual reality. And this, in turn, shapes our mission in the world. And here are the final things I'll say right now. In a world without meaning, we are a people who have meaning. In a world of confused decisions, we are a people of illuminating clarity. In a world that has no backbone for its ethics, we are a people who have confidence in the kingdom of God. And in a world that has no explanation for suffering, Peter calls us to be a people of inexpressible joy. Now, we're not meant to do this alone. You're not meant to be alone in this. We're meant to do it together. To love one another, to recall Jesus to one another, and to be filled with the Spirit together.